Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks. This is First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Just with writing, not everything from an interview makes it into the final show. So here are some outtakes from this first draft. My guest is writer, editor, and teacher Hannah Tinty. Her novel is called The Good Thief. So you switched from biology to a writing major, and I'm wondering if your parents were surprised or they saw something in you. Your mom was a librarian, so she knew what it was like to be around books. Well, everybody in my family are super readers. Um, You know, where other families, it would be sort of a treat where they would wheel the TV in and you'd watch TV or you bring your plates in front of the TV and watch a TV show together. For us, the treat was we could all bring a book to the table and we'd all sit there and read separately, but we'd all be sitting (laughs) at dinner. That was the world that I grew up in. So uh, the thing that concerned my parents and concerned them more as I got a little bit older was actually how was I going to make a living doing this. So that worried them (laughs) for a while, whereas science felt like a very concrete thing to do with your life. Becoming a writer felt very amorphous and dangerous. So once you decided that you wanted to write, what was sort of your path? Well, I uh, took writing classes again at college, and then I graduated and I I never thought I'd be able to earn a living as a writer. Um, I felt, oh, well, maybe I'll try and work in publishing. So I moved back home, and the first thing I did was I got a job in a bookstore, in an independent bookstore called Spirit of 76 in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is the next town over from Salem. And that was actually a great learning experience to learn how books are actually come in and out and how they're sold and how people ask for books and how books are recommended recommended to readers. Then I applied for an internship at the Boston Review and got it, was lucky enough to get it. And so I would work on my days off. I would work at the Boston Review and then I'd wait tables at night. So it was this, I basically had three jobs, you know, sort of my, I forget, I think, forget how much I was getting paid, you know, $5 an hour or something, (laughs) you know, pittance, really, which is why I had to wait tables at night. And then, uh, you know, because you have to work through the weekend for the bookstore um, and work weekends uh, waiting tables. And then I'd have like two days off, like Mondays and Tuesdays. And those I would go into the city and I would learn about reading the slush pile and being an editorial assistant. From there, I got another assistantship at... um, internship at the Atlantic Monthly and worked there and was able to sort of get a lot of knowledge from Michael Curtis, who was the fiction editor there for a very long time. And after being out of school for about a year, year and a half, I decided, you know, I should, if I'm going to do this, I should go for it and apply to grad school. I mean, I'm glad I took that time to figure out that's what I really wanted to do. I think sometimes students, I've met some students at some of the graduate programs where I teach now, and they just go directly from undergrad to grad school, and it's like they've OD'd on classes, and it's a little too much. But um, So I applied, and I went to NYU. So I moved to New York and started taking writing classes there. I got a job 
at a literary agency and worked there during the day and took night classes at NYU for my graduate degree. And E.L. Doctor was my thesis advisor, which was really exciting since he was a big hero of mine. And I met Danny Shapiro, who became a huge mentor for me. And I know that she's been to Aspen a number of times and that you've interviewed her. She's fantastic and also has become one of my close friends. So, um, so it was a process of always, for me, trying to train myself creatively, but at the same time, I always worked in publishing, so I always had this background of actually seeing the dark side right. <laughs> of the literary world, um, you know, being on both sides of the desk. You know, some writers, when they start writing, and I know you had a collection of short stories and then your novel, have some basic questions that are nagging at them that they write to answer. Did you have any themes or general things that you really thought about a lot that you wanted to get on paper? Or do you more start your stories in a whimsical way? Um, for the short stories, I, I don't know, probably for every all of my writing, it actually comes from a more um, whimsical, for lack of a, you know, for, for jumping off of your word, place, uh, I, I think a sort of more subconscious place. And oftentimes, uh, it's I come across something that I've seen, read, um, an idea, or I see, and then it, it's that that thing is haunting me. It's in my head. I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking about it. And ask, start asking myself questions. And as I ask myself questions, that's what, how the story begins to form for my story collection called Animal Crackers. What very quickly started to I started realizing was that what I was writing about were animals and the animalistic side of human nature. But it took me a while to actually understand that's what I was going for. I was just writing lots of stories that I was interested in, and then someone was like, "Hey, you, you keep writing about animals. What's that about?" And I was like, "I am. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe I should actually try to see what's happening there and and, and push that direction." Like for example, um, the f final story in the collection is called. Miss Waldron's Red Colobus. And what happened was I read an article in the New York Times about that specific breed being declared extinct. And it was a very, it was an interesting article, but they did not address why that monkey was called Miss Waldron's Red Colobus. And I said, said to myself, well, who was Miss Waldron? Um, why was she having monkeys named after her in the 1920s? And the only thing I could dig up when I did some research was that she was a traveling companion to one of the hunters who was traveling around and shot these first specimens. So I was like, who's this woman not married to this guy traveling around Africa in the early 1920s and having monkeys named after her? She seems very interesting. I want to write a story about her. So things like that will just, and then of course the story ends up getting bigger and bigger and being more about other elements that I'm my subconscious is pulling out I guess right it's interesting because in a way it's kind of like the scientific method hmm. where you start with a bunch of questions that you have to prove but in your writing it's probably like less conscious I, I think you start in this strange you start with just sort of um something else I do or you know used to do quite more frequently not as much as I would like to anymore is pottery. So I used to use that metaphor as well as that before you actually create a bowl, you have to make the clay. And that's just a whole mixing of various 
um, ingredients. And then, you know, you, you have to you have to make the clay, you have to do all these different things before something actually even begins to take shape. And I think that the subconscious stuff, the first scenes, the first ideas that you're putting on the page are that they're just the clay. They're just the materials that hopefully you're going to dig into and eventually shape into a story. So for me, usually that's a scene or an idea, a vision, an image that I put on the page, and then I just start breaking it apart, asking those questions. Is there anything you want to talk about in this book in particular? I guess that it's a, it's a book that I, I, I've loved, and I loved writing it, and I loved – it's been wonderful having it out in the world. It's done very well. It keeps – it's sort of, it's, you know, some books, and particularly, you know, because I work in publishing and I've worked in bookstores and I see the lifespan of books. And some have a very, you know, sort of have a lifespan that they like boom really fast and then they sort of fall really fast and they're kind of like had their moment and they go. And then some just sort of become instant classics and are just like bestsellers for a really long time. And for The Good Thief, uh, it, you know, got great reviews, but it's really just been like, a, it's been like the turtle book it's like a slow and steady wins the race it's just like it's continued and continued and continued and sort of slowly you know gained more and more readers in an interesting way and um you know I just got an email from my publisher they're going back for their 15th printing of the book and that's that's amazing you know for a book that was originally published in 2008 so it's it's been taken on by schools it's it's at the same time, a lot of adults read it. It's it's a strange sort of appealing, I think, to uh, both a sort of teenage reader and also an adult reader. I mean, I wrote it for adults, and, and then it sort of sort of found its way backwards into a younger readership as well. But it's been exciting to see, uh, particularly actually parents and their kids reading it together. And um, it's always going to be dear to my heart. I was under the assumption that when you apply to a literary magazine to have your story accepted that it has to be done. And so when you read a story that you know needs maybe a little to a lot of editing, how do you still know that you want to accept it? It's always, um, that's a question I get a lot, which is what do you look for? How do you know when you read something? And it's, it's funny, I know immediately. I know within the first paragraph almost always whether or not I'm going to end up accepting a story or not. And... It's because how engaged am I by that first paragraph as a reader? And granted, because I've been reading this slush for like 20 years, um, I know by now, you know, you read hundreds of stories a day, you know when something has pulled you in. And uh, so it's a little like panning for gold. But then when you, you know, we go for months and months and months where I'm not finding anything. And I'm like, oh, my God, am I ever going to find another story? And then one, then like a whole bunch come at once. And, um, and a lot of it is just how closely I feel that, that connection. And I care and I'm interested and I want to turn the page. And I don't even think too much about what they're doing logistically. Um, I just want to know, has, is this something I've seen before? Um, is this something new, exciting? Um, are they taking an old story and finding a new way to tell it? Which, which is also something that we often look for. Um, I think it's good to know, though, that it's sort of like that you're willing to work with people, that you that there's some kernel in something that you love that you're willing to work with. I think that's encouraging probably for a lot of writers to know that if they're at the very 
kernel and center if their story has a heart that editors are willing to take them on. I, I do encourage writers to push the work as far as possible on their own because I think you should only turn your work over to an editor if you've taken it as far as you can possibly take it because otherwise what ends up happening is that editor's influence can be too strong and can almost take over the story. And I, I'm always hoping or trying to encourage the writers, if possible, if they're capable, if they have the skills to figure out these problems of the story on their own. Or I sort of, I usually offer a few suggestions and I'm like, okay, what feels right to you? This or this or this, here are some ways I can see us fixing this problem. And, um, and then, you know, tell them to follow their intuition for that. Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks.